how, as Catholics, should we think about individuals with disabilities? How should we treat them? And how does that differ from the way the culture in which we live thinks about and treats these individuals? Join us today as we explore those questions and more with Dr. Teresa Farnan, who teaches philosophy at St. Paul's Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm Dr. Bob Rice, professor of catechetics at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. University presents. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Rice, a professor of catechetics here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we're talking about the state, the church, and disabilities. I'm joined by Dr. William Newton, a theology professor here at Franciscan University, and by Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan. And we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Dr. Teresa Farnan. Dr. Farnan teaches at St. Paul's Seminary in Pittsburgh. Previously, she taught in the philosophy program at Franciscan University of Steubenville, as well as the pre-theology program at Mount St. Mary's Seminary, and in the diaconate program for the Diocese of Harrisburg. She served as a consultant for the USCCB Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, Life, and Youth. She is the co-author of Get Out Now, Why You Should Pull Your Child from Public School Before It's Too Late, and the co-author with Dr. Charles Rice of Where Did I Come From? Where Am I Going? How Do I Get There? Dr. Farnan received her master's degree and her doctorate in medieval studies from the University of Notre Dame. She and her husband have 10 children. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, Thank it's you. wonderful to have you back, you know, as you used to teach here, and uh, to have you back on campus is always a gift. Oh, I love coming back here. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I really am. It's like a home to me. Amen. I mean, my father was so devoted to the university. He mm. really loved it, so I, I love, love being here. Well, and we're very excited about today's topic. Um, we're talking about disabilities, and is that even the right word to use? How do we, maybe we can just begin by, what do we mean when we, when we use that word? Yeah, that's a, uh, uh, there are a number of different definitions. We could um, either use a, a medical or a legal definition, um, where the medical definition would be um, placed in terms of um, different illnesses, different um, deficiencies or deficits in terms of your functioning, your ability to function, um, and legally, I think Think it's a little bit more expansive. It can include mental and physical um, deficits or anything that impairs your functioning. So, but but it, it really encompasses a whole spectrum. So you can have congenital disabilities um, such as Down syndrome. I have a daughter with Down syndrome. That's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in this topic. Mm. Or you can have um, disabilities that occur during the course of your life, right? So whether it's the result of trauma or illness or just aging. All of us at some point in our lives are going to experience disability, every single one. Can you talk a little bit about your daughter and the experience of learning about that? I mean, was this really your, your kind of foray into this un deeper understanding of disabilities or was this something you were involved with beforehand? Um, I, you know, it was one of those interesting things. My, I had been speaking for a while on pro-life topics and every time I spoke, I would talk about how the um, children with Down syndrome in particular were being targeted for abortion and I really just felt 
compelled to speak out in defense of these children because once they're diagnosed prenatally with Down syndrome, then the abortion rate here in the United States is between 60 to 70 percent, depending on the figures you read. And in European countries, it can be as high as 99 percent. Iceland, we know, has set the goal of eliminating Down syndrome, curing Down syndrome, syndrome, quote unquote, but the way that they contemplate eliminating it is eliminating the persons who have it. So I felt very compelled to, um, to really speak out. And around that time, I became pregnant with my 10th child. Mm -hmm. And um, I was over 40. And of course, you know, I knew that the, the odds of having a child with Down syndrome are obviously much higher. Um, but you know, my kids are at a school where kids with Down, a Catholic school where kids mm -hmm. are Down, uh, kids with Down syndrome are mainstream. So it, was, it didn't frighten me. Yeah. Um, I've had some cousins who have had different disabilities. Um, and uh, so in the course of the pregnancy, it was interesting. And um, the, the very first visit I had, the first doctor I went to was really pushing prenatal tests. And she said to me, she, she kept pushing early prenatal testing. And I said, I don't see any reason why I would do that. And she said, well, it's to weed out Down syndrome, <laughs> right? Well, now, obviously, you're not weeding out Down syndrome. You're yeah. weeding out the person with Down syndrome. Yeah. And I pushed back immediately. And I said, I've never had a perfect child. I don't expect to have a perfect child. I love my children. My children are all fantastic, but nobody's perfect, right? And so we went home and... Um, you haven't met Scott's kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so months later, um, a few months later, when we went for our ultrasound, they spent a long time measuring the nasal bridge and the fold of the neck. And at that time, my husband and I, we were with 10 kids, you can imagine, we were kind of ultrasound pros. Yeah. So I, I was watching too, and I went home ahead of the phone call with the, the um, obstetrician and did some research and came up with a game plan that involved doing a fetal echo just to make sure the baby's heart was okay. Because I realized at that point I probably did have a, mm. I probably was carrying a child with Down syndrome. Um, so that really actually I think uh, is what kicked into high gear my concern for children with Down syndrome. Because along the way, having gone through that experience, you realize very quickly, no matter how strong your pro-life convictions are, you are carrying the child that 60% of your peers would not want to carry. Mm. And that's a very crushing emotional burden for any expectant mother, no matter how firm they are in their pro-life convictions. And you can imagine someone who really hasn't thought about it or who doesn't have those pro-life convictions, how devastating that would be. So, so from that point on, you know, I became really concerned with, with being more of an advocate for kids with Down syndrome. And I will say now that my, my daughter is born, mm -hmm. she is She's amazing. Um, I'm known locally as Annie's mom. Um, she's like a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> she is, she's, um, her speech is somewhat delayed. And she's, um, so that makes it difficult to ascertain her, the extent of her developmental delay. But, um, but in every respect, she's thriving from the age of, of two, she was able to navigate our remote control and get to her favorite movies. And you know, she's <laughs> yeah. as smart as can be. And during the Stanley Cup, she would stand when Pittsburgh was in the Stanley Cup finals or in the playoffs. You always see her out there playing hockey with the other kids. Yeah. And she's in the little dribblers program at school. And so she's I, a Penguins fan. She's a huge Penguins Love fan and a Steelers fan. Yes, yes. 
So, so she's amazing. But, but I will tell you, it is, it's fascinating from the insider perspective just to see how precarious the position of persons with disabilities is. And the, the, the flip side of it was around the same time we were caring for my mother-in-law, who was, she was in late stages of Alzheimer's, mm. and she was experiencing swallowing difficulties. And um, in the course of it, we realized how much pressure there is on the other end of life to hasten death because we live in a culture that's very uncomfortable caring for persons with disabilities. Mm -hmm. and so and my, my wife and myself actually had this experience um, about eight years ago. We had a child born who was asphyxiated during the labor and so had very chronic brain damage. And the child survived about two years, but eventually came to the, uh, the complications. But um, once, it was once it was diagnosed that she had really global brain damage and she was blind, deaf, she would never be able to move, she couldn't swallow, then the doctors sort of you know, sat us down and said, well, look, the situation's not good for this child and our recommendation would be that you know, she stays here in the hospital and you know, we feed her and whatnot, but if she got a bacterial infection, then we wouldn't recommend to actually treat it. Uh. I mean, of course, bacterial infection can be treated with antibiotics, so the inference was clear that, you know, that your child is different from other children, and our recommendation is that, you know, you kind of let her drift out. Yes. And of course, you know, we were very fortunate that we had, you know, formation through the church. We had lots of friends who we knew would support us, and we said, of course, no, you just treat it like you can treat any other child. We want the child home. They were very professional from that point onwards. But there were other children in the hospital that we noticed that, you know, after a while, once the doctors had spoken to them, they didn't visit the children anymore. And then eventually the children weren't there when you turned up the next day. Mm. Mm. And it, it always struck me, I mean, these people who were dealing, dealing with the doctors, they're not bad or evil people, but they're sitting in a culture which is just leaning in that direction. I don't know exactly what it is, whether it's just not having a sort of a God-orientated vision of reality or not seeing any point in suffering. I just wonder what your reflections would be. I mean, what, what, what is building the culture which would lead to an Iceland where every child, I think, in the last years who actually were actually caught while they're in the womb as Down syndrome yes. were aborted? I mean, what, what's the culture? I, you know, I, well, my, my trade is philosophy, right? So um, when you read the writings of different philosophers, especially um, it's a, it's a combination of just this identification of the person with cognitive functioning, basically, um, that we've inherited from the time of Descartes. Um, you see it a lot in John Locke when you read the essay concerning human understanding, where he describes personal identity as being um, you know, indelibly linked with your cognitions, your thoughts, your memories, your understanding, your ability to do all of those things. So our culture looks at someone like that with a very functional, someone like your child or my child, with a very functional perspective and, and, and makes the assumption that because we don't see meaningful cognition going on, therefore that per, that's not a person. And so when you read the writings of um, different, uh, you know, different medical ethicists now, it's very clear that they see these children as something less than a person and as a life not worth living. And the other, the other factor going into it is this preference utilitarianism, which favors the preferences of the mother and the father over the dignity of the child. And so someone like Peter Singer will articulate a vision where Peter, Peter Singer defends the rights of parents 
to, in the, the situation you described, to essentially have a do-over, and rather than spending the time caring for a child with, with any kind of extraordinary needs or physical challenges, that family then gets to essentially allow that child to die or hasten their death and then go and try for a quote unquote more normal baby. And so you have this toxic blend of these two, these two streams coalescing and in the middle of it then too you have um, you know, a view of medicine where we expect perfection. Right, And so prenatally, my, I've heard from obstetricians, it's terrifying telling parents that their child is not going to be perfect, right? Because everybody wants the perfect baby. And what they don't understand is that my child, the, the, my child's perfections are perfections that encompass who she is, Down syndrome and all. I mean, she's just, she's an amazing child, but she's amazing because she loves mm. so much and she's able to give and receive love. When you'd explain it that way, it's sobering because I think most Americans, even those who are Catholic, tend to think in terms of election cycles and political party platforms and that sort of thing. And so when you're pointing back to Descartes, you know, in the 16th and 17th century, the roots were already there. Yes. You know, and so this isn't something that is just going to be reversed in a simple way. I mean, the view of the soul and the body, which is so dualistic, you know, you, instrumentalizes the body. And so you're not going to want someone in a body like that any more than you're going to want to be in a car that doesn't function, you know? Yes. And, and the body is just sort of reduced to that. But you brought up another point too in passing, and that is, you know, our technology is capable of determining to an extent how much sensation, how much perception they have. But what we forget is that we're trying our best to perceive their perceptibility. And so often they perceive much more than Absolutely. we realize. Absolutely. And how many times have we heard stories of people in coma who could hear, you know, or people who have disabilities who couldn't register how much they were assimilating, you know? And so everything is just so objectified, instrumentalized, and then technologized so that if we can't tell that they're perceiving things, they must not be. Yes, you know. absolutely. And we know there's MRI evidence too that persons in persistent vegetative states are able to hear and process what's right. going on. Significant brain and, activity. And yeah. we found that, we discovered that with my mother-in-law. She was in advanced stages of Alzheimer's. And um, when we would read her anecdotes from her youth or talk to her about mm. persons, we would see physiological signs of her comprehending, wow. right? We would see her seeming to be distressed when you would remind her of something unhappy, somebody who had died. Mm. Or if you started talking about one of her happy memories, she would visibly relax. It was the most amazing thing. It really was just a privilege to be around her. Yeah, a divine perspective to see humans through the eyes of a loving father, you know, or a Christ-centered perspective to see what God can do with suffering yes. and dying. You know, this is sort of like, these aren't, you know, um, options that you might add to your vehicle. I mean, these things are essential perhaps now for our culture more than ever before. Right, and we, and we don't, we, we, we are missing so much that adds richness to our lives because when people are encountering suffering, when the people we love are suffering, 
we're being encouraged to just hurry up and let them, you know, hurry up and, and have them die. Not even let them die. I mean, I remember when my mother and my, my father both passed away, especially when my mother had suffered a stroke, and um, we interviewed different hospice caregivers, and it was interesting to see the difference because mm -hmm. some of them were talking about things you could do. Well, you know, you can do this. Some people like to do this. And at every step of the way, we kept thinking, well, this will hasten her death, and we're not in a hurry. We're enjoying having mom here. Yeah, I mean, our time was short. She'd had a catastrophic stroke. But, but that's the mentality. And, and unfortunately, I think so many people, especially either at the end of life or in the beginning when you encounter you know, devastating news about your child or when you're, you're dealing with death and you're, death and you're already emotionally just, just distraught anyway at the news, to, to be steered in a certain direction that benefits the hospitals, that financially you know, ends up spending less money on the person who's sick or disabled, um, it, it can be very easy to fall into the trap of being influenced in such a way and thinking that medical experts are the ones who know best. Right. And they and don't. They're, and they're looking out many times for their own interest. When we come back, we're going to talk more about this, particularly ways uh, that many disabled people are in danger uh, from such kind of policies, so please stay with us. When I think about autism, I think about a kid I had in my 211 class, sitting on the right side. He was very smart, loud, um, perhaps some of his responses weren't appropriate in some small way. Anyway, the girls didn't like him, they felt put off by the guy. Um, and I felt that was kind of sad because he was just being who he is. You know, I have two autistic kids, so I know something about it. So um, I think we've got to educate ourselves with um, how people can behave and understand that we have to love them anyway. That's what we do. When God created you, he made you like no other person. You are unique, singular, and unrepeatable. So shouldn't your college experience be the same? At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. You'll discover lifelong friends and mentors who will welcome you, challenge you, and encourage you. Because we believe as Catholics, we are not called to hide from culture, but transform it. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about the state, the church, and disabilities with our guest, Dr. Teresa Farnan. Um, in the last segment, you said something that really uh, was a bit of a revelation for me, that the philosophical foundation of Descartes, you know, is, is so much a part of our society. I think, therefore I am. And therefore, if you can't think, you must not. Or, you know, the, the level at which you think defines your being and your value in society. And we, in our Western culture, I think we, I know we have a lot of laws and a lot of 
um, cultural attitudes towards that, what are some ways in which people with disabilities really are in danger in our society today? Oh, absolutely. I, they're in danger both before birth and then uh, definitely at the end of life. But, mm -hmm. um, but it, it's an interesting mix. So um, just to give a little bit of background um, or a little bit of perspective, um, prior to birth, you, we all know that the unborn child is declared to be not a person. Mm -hmm. And now with the new legislation, they're advancing in both um, uh, in New York and the failed legislation in Virginia and Vermont is passing maybe the most radical legislation of all with a right to abortion, period. No limits, no restrictions, nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So what that sets the stage for is that the, the child before birth has is a human being but not a person, mm -hmm. okay? And increasingly we're seeing at the end of life um, in cases such as the, um, the highly publicized um, killing of Terry Schiavo, she was deemed to be not a person near the end of her life because she was in a persistent vegetative state. We saw with um, the case of Jahai McMath, the little girl who had a tonsillectomy, that a failed tonsillectomy and adenoid sur or airway surgery out in Los Angeles, that the, the the court literally declared her dead, and she is still alive in a nursing home in New Jersey. And so her family has had to go back to Los Angeles to petition to for the court to recognize her as a person again mm -hmm. so that they can sue the hospital. Mm -hmm. So increasingly, at the margins, we're declaring that persons with disability actually aren't persons. But then in the, in the middle, one of the things we're seeing is um, it's almost like a 180 degree turnaround where there's an increasing emphasis on autonomy. So this is something that's difficult when you have a child with a disability because when your child turns 18, they're autonomous no matter, and they're, they're in charge of their own decisions no matter how disabled they are. And so increasingly I hear from my friends who have older children with disabilities that it can be very frustrating because they're boxed out of, in a sense, they could legally be boxed out of their care, their medical care. And we're seeing this not just with kids with, with disabilities, with, with your, your ordinary children, right? My, I, I have a healthcare portal, and I went onto the healthcare portal to pull up an x-ray for my 15-year-old daughter because she was applying for a scholarship and um, needed to have some x-ray results. It was a, um, a ROTC scholarship. And, um, I could not access any of her records, 15 years old, mm. because she was over the age of 12. And so over the age of 12, healthcare systems are circling the wagon and regarding these young children as mature minors. And so it's the same thing with persons with disabilities. So for example, one of the things that's been very hard for um, parents with, with um, uh, children who might be on the autistic spectrum and then decide that they're transgender is that they can't get treatment for the autism because that child by invoking the transgender identity has been declared to be a mature, you know, a mature minor capable of making their own healthcare decisions regardless of the disability. So we have this very strange schizophrenia in our culture mm -hmm. where we treat them as non-persons at the margins of their life and then in the middle of their life we're, we're, we're trying to encourage them to achieve this ideal of full aut autonomy and they may never, nor is it even 
I'm not sure it's even, a, like, why are we celebrating that as the good rather than celebrating their life as a good and seeing them as persons and their, you know, their, my daughter's dependency is not something that is a tragedy. Mm -hmm. yeah. It enriches everyone's life. We're all dependent. I can ask you a question actually about, I read your paper, a paper you wrote on this question of, of the good and, and disability, or the beautiful and the good. And it really struck me a point, a point in there because one thing I think you were saying is that sometimes disability can be, it seems, aesthetically ugly. And because we connect beauty and good together, we can move from ugly to, to bad. And this actually might be something not so recognized, but it's, it's in the atmosphere that something's not attractive to us physically. We think somehow it's bad, I don't know, morally or at a deep physical level and therefore should be got rid of. And um, in, the, in the essay, it seemed to me there was a challenge to see um, when we're looking at persons with infirmities or disabilities, not to, not to, as it were, to say, well, I'm going to look at the beauty beyond the infirmity. I'm going to dig deeper and I'll find something beautiful but actually to, at some level, see beauty in the infirmity, or at least see the person as beautiful on account of their infirmity, not aside from it. And I was trying to think, well, what does that mean? And uh, something that came to my mind was, uh, back home I have a friend who's Down syndrome, is nearly 40, and, um, and then I've got this other uh, um, uh, hermit who I've done some tutoring with. And what strikes me about both of these two is that they have utterly uncluttered spiritual minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yes. They have a kind of like direct line to God. And it's very impressive. And I say, thought, well, maybe that's what you're getting at, that I should, I, I'm not trying to dig deeper into this friend with Down syndrome to find something beautiful. Actually, something about the fact that they have this infirmity makes them beautiful. Is that what you're getting at? Was that too far? You know, I, I don't think that's too far at all. Now, now, just by way of background, I, I was brought into that topic because there was an article published in the British Journal of Medical Ethics arguing for afterbirth abortion. And they highlighted two cases in particular, Down syndrome and Treacher-Collins syndrome. And both of those both of those syndromes are marked by a distinctive appearance. So that was the first thing as a mother. I said, whoa, wait a minute, they're targeting our kids because in part, these disabilities, which are not life-threatening and which can occur in varying degrees, they're, they're aesthetically unappealing mm. to, these, to these parents and to these medical professionals. And, um, and so in the course of really thinking about it, I thought, hold on a minute, I, I, my daughter is beautiful. And she's not beautiful because I'm seeing an inner beauty. She actually is beautiful. She's a beautiful young woman. And there are features of Down syndrome when you look at them and study them closely. For example, her eyes, she has these little flecks of, of white in her eyes. They're called Brushfeld spots. And it's, it's a characteristic of Down syndrome. When she was in the hospital, they brought all the, the, the med students around to show them what a child with Down syndrome looked like because unfortunately now it's increasingly rare. Mm -hmm. And so in the process of showing them what a child with Down syndrome looked like, they said, oh, and look at her eyes. Look at these Brushfeld spots. And I, I looked at her and just was struck with admiration. They're gorgeous. Mm. She has beautiful eyes, and these beautiful eyes are part and parcel of her having Down syndrome. So, so the challenge for us, I think, is to move beyond this very shallow, superficial understanding of beauty and to say, you know, when we talk about persons with Down syndrome being beautiful or anyone with a disability, we're not just either 
you know, saying something meaningless, and we're not just sort of pivoting to, well, they have an inner beauty, which as a parent of a child with a disability to me is fairly patronizing, actually, because that's not what I mean. She's beautiful as she is, right? I, I don't look at her and say, oh, there's Annie, inner beauty. I look at her and say, oh, there's my, my gorgeous little girl, right? And so that's the challenge for us. The challenge for us is if we really believe that there is a unity between beauty and goodness, and that the more, the, the more goodness you have, you instantiate, you exemplify, the more beautiful you are, then how can we say that these sinless, you know, these, these children who are incapable of committing a mortal sin, because they lack, you know, in, in, in many cases, they lack sufficient reason, you know, how can we say that they're not beautiful? So we have to be able to, to push a little deeper and say, what do we mean by beauty? If, if I speak as a theologian, it's not because I'm against philosophers. <laughs> uh, I think what you're doing is, is, is beautiful and important, indispensable and effective. You know, philosophical arguments, you know, uh, legal and scientific arguments, the personal and the experiential that you share as a wife and a mom, as well as a teacher. And at the same time, as I listen to the conversation about the openness of the spiritual and the uncluttered, you know, there's always this additional element uh, that doesn't always appear on the radar screens of those who are looking for nothing more than secular arguments. And it just seems to me that our sensitivities are natural, you know, they're empirical, they're rational, but they're also endowed with the Holy Spirit, without whom I'm not sure our culture can really retrieve this, you know. Now I'm always the one to hasten on to the new evangelization, you know. But as I, I do think therein lies our hope. Mm -hmm. uh, along with, it's not, you know, let's just skip over the, the legal, the scientific, the philosophical, and the personal. I think those are essential, but secular arguments are not enough, as Professor Jennifer Roback Moore says, said about marriage, for mm -hmm. example, you know. And I, I think of what Professor Marianne Glendon also indicated in her study of the UN Declaration of Human Rights that when Maritan and others were contributing to this, you know, the, the human rights that pertain to us as persons, you know, without any explicit recourse to theological language, they were kind of surprised when the Marxist bloc voted unanimously to veto that. And one of the respondents said, the language of the person is Christian theology. It's like a wake-up call. No, it's not. Mm. Well, you go back to Plato and Aristotle, and in a certain sense, they understand human nature. They understand individuals. But, you know, it isn't until you come to the mystery of Christ, one person, two natures, or the Trinity, three persons, one nature, that the notion of personhood is clarified, and then it flips around, and all of a sudden we discover who we are mm -hmm. in view of Christ. Right. And it seems to me that it's like digging a tunnel from both sides. We have to be the natural, the philosophical, the scientific, and the legal. And yet at the same time, I think we've got to be realistic about our long-term prognosis, our hopes, you know, because apart from Christ, we can do nothing individually, socially, medically. And I do believe that he wants to work through non-Christians and especially the handicapped. But I can't help but think that behind the scenes, our guardian angels spot a much, much more serious debilitating handicap, and that is the kind of moral handicap that blinds people from seeing the real issues. Right. And that's willful. Right. You know, that isn't something that's devoid of mortal sin or volition.
I, I completely agree. And here's the challenge. Here's the difficulty. So in 2008, in the United States, there were 200 and only 240,000 persons with Down syndrome. Hmm. That shocked me. Only 240,000 individuals in the United States. In 2008. In 2008. The number I, I have just, to Not just born, but just period. No, period. Wow. Period. Okay. Only, wow. okay, so the number since then, because we have prenatal testing and we've had older generations passing away and fewer being born, I would imagine that the number, if we were to survey again, would be lower. Mm -hmm. So in terms of that experiential understanding, and you know, I, my daughter really, and other children with Down syndrome really are just a gateway to love, really. Right. They draw you in, they, people cannot resist her because she just exudes joy. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she looks at people and she sees the good and she invites them in. She has this very welcoming personality. But the, the difficulty that we're facing is that increasingly we're aborting these children out of existence. And so to, to your argument, how do you do that when there are fewer and fewer of these children left? And one of the, one of the um, arguments that I read online made the point that increasingly these children with Down syndrome are for the most part being born into Christian families or very devoutly religious families because they're the ones who who are predisposed to accept them and see the value in them so but but they're fewer and fewer i mean school districts people parents will tell you if they have a child in a school district even a large school district their child might be the only only child at that elementary school or that middle school there might be one child with down syndrome well we will continue with this conversation and particularly take a look at how the church uh, might be the antidote and Christian communities be the antidote uh, to truly respecting people with disabilities. So please stay with us. As someone who lives with spina bifida, I want you to know that if it looks to you like I may need help with something, you need not worry about being rude or insulting or embarrassing to me by asking me if I need help. On the contrary, please know that you did the right thing and that I appreciate your concern for my safety and well-being from the bottom of my heart. You don't have to trade top flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents and we're coming to you from the Communication Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment, and my colleagues in the theology department, Dr. William Newton and Dr. Scott Hahn, are guiding our discussion with our special guest, Dr. Teresa Farnan. As we look at how the church might respond, you know, a thing I've heard a few times uh, in our conversation, William, you brought it up in your own situation, was you had a supportive community, you know, a, a real faith community that, here in Steubenville, uh, where there are a lot of big Catholic families and, and a beautiful embrace of a culture of life, you know, I think of a number of students at the school my kids go to uh, who have Down syndrome, and they're on the basketball team. 
you know, and it's such a beautiful moment to see, uh, you know, these, you know, it's my, my daughter's basketball team, and there's this young girl who's on the team, and they throw her the ball, and everybody's cheering for her, and, you know, the whole crowds are cheering for her, and, and it's just beautiful. It's just so beautiful. But I can imagine, you know, as you're talking about less and less of these beautiful faces being seen in our society, you know, if you don't have that experience, if you've never seen this before, uh, it can be a very frightening reality. You can think, right. oh, this person's going to be ostracized the rest of their life. You know, no one's going to love them. They're going to be dependent. Mm -hmm. All of these lies, really, of the devil uh, that can lead somebody to say, we shouldn't have them. We should do whatever we can do to eradicate them. I, th I think for me, the, the, the single most um, supportive thing we experienced, I mean, in the time we were living with the Franciscan community in Austria, and so of course we had the students were fantastic, and all the faculty they helped us practically. But the single most important thing for myself and my wife in those two years was to experience that other people loved our child. Yes. And when we eventually got the child out, uh, Elizabeth out <coughs> of hospital, I had actually baptized her in the operating theatre because it looked very mm -hmm. like she wasn't going to make it. Uh, we had the rest of the baptismal rite done, and we, she received Holy Communion through a feeding tube, precious blood, mm. and confirmation, got permission for confirmation because we also didn't know how long she would live. And for me, it's one of the greatest days of my life because the whole community were there, you know, maybe 150 of us, and we did it in a divine liturgy, and it was glorious. Mm. And for me, it was glorious because I just looked out there and I thought, those people love my child. They, they're expressing, we're glad she's alive. We're glad she's amongst us. Mm. And amongst whatever else they might do practically, that gave life to our experience with them. And that's what a Christian community can do. And if you don't have that, these other people we met in the hospital, are, you know, I, I don't judge them, but they don't have that community. Yeah, they're utterly isolated. It must yes. have been terrifying for them. I think so. I, 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 I absolutely agree with that. And, and for us as a family, the, the way that our friends rallied to help, I mean, the times when my daughter has been in the hospital, I mean, we were buried with, with different meals, you know, mm. to the point where even with 10 kids, we could barely keep up. And just so much <laughs> kindness, people offering us rides. Um, but, but even more than that, just the, the way people respond when they see her, they really love my daughter. And I love my daughter. I, I want people to love my daughter. So that's actually really important. And I, I think this is, we are at a crucial point where Catholic parishes and Catholic schools in particular need to take a minute and say to themselves, what could I do more for kids with disabilities? Not in a patronizing way, not like as in let's have a food drive to benefit them, but what can I do more to welcome them in? Which might mean in some cases, I mean, we've been to, to churches, well, our parish in particular has a reputation for being wel very welcoming for persons with disabilities. So it's not uncommon that you'll have kids with autism and they make noise during mass. You know what? To me, it's a beautiful sound. And if your parish can't welcome, you know, a young man or, a, a, you know, maybe he's walking around in the back vestibule with headphones on because he can't stand the noise, or maybe he's inside making noise, or maybe it's a child with Down syndrome who is, you know, my, my daughter at the, the moment of the consecration, <laughs> every time the bells are rung, she makes a sound. She really does. And she does it in rhythm with the bells. And no matter how much I try to shush her, she still makes the sound and then she turns and shushes me. So so um, <laughs> she knows there's something significant. Yeah. So, so we really need to recognize that in terms of both um, encountering and challenging the culture of death, 
but also for the new evangelization, this is our entryway. Mm -hmm. Because right now, we're almost the only, the only game in town, so to speak. The Christian community really is the community that consistently welcomes persons with disabilities and their families. And so it's so important. It's important, I mean, you talked about having kids with Down syndrome at your school, and my daughter's part of the St. Anthony program in Pittsburgh, but almost throughout the country, that is actually extremely rare. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's no reason why Catholic schools can't figure out how to support kids with Down syndrome in school. I think the witness of the Christian community, and especially Catholic parishes, is indispensable and profound, and not just for parishioners, but for outsiders. They sense that love, and that's what we're all kind of longing for. You know, but I'm reminded of what, you know, you said earlier about Descartes, you know, and uh, how far back it goes, because the idea of the body just simply being an instrumentum, you know, and it reverses, I think, over a thousand years of, of grace-filled insight that comes to us through our living tradition, that the body is, in a certain sense, a sacramentum. Mm-hmm. You know, a small s sacramentum, it's not now number eight, but at the same time, the sacramentality of our faith embodies this and enfleshes this, and in the Eucharist especially, the most blessed sacrament, but all the other ways too. I remember studying medieval theology, Lombard and the three opinions, and thinking this is just esoteric nonsense, you know, homo sumptus, you have the habitus theory, but what they were driving at was that Christ's body is not just, you know, like a habit that a nun wears or, you know, a glove that you put on your hand. It became him so that what he's doing in his body, it's like, wow. You know, then suddenly the body that we have is not something that we just can't wait to discard because there's a resurrection. And in the original Greek on the Apostles' Creed, it's not the resurrection of the body, it's the resurrection of the flesh. It's like, seriously? Mm -hmm. That's shocking. But it's the flesh that becomes the instrument of our salvation. And when you read about that in the Gospels, the infirmities themselves, those who are blind, those who are deaf, those who are crippled, you know, those who are paralyzed, become living signs of the way God sees us. You know, as St. Ambrose would remind his congregation, you know, the man's paralysis was one thing, but Jesus forgave him of his sins because sin paralyzes us more than any physical ailment. And so there are lessons of compassion to be learned. But I'll tell you, the hardest lesson for me sometimes is to be in my parish and distracted by someone who's, who's handicapped with some disability and to look and suddenly have my guardian angel turn my vision right around. I'm like, that's me. I mean, th- the proximity of that person to me, I, I am so deaf, I am so oblivious, I'm so easily distracted. And I just felt God's love for that person He loves me in spite of that as well. Mm -hmm. And there's so much mercy that God longs to give to individuals, to families, to parishes, and I dare say I suspect to our culture as well, if it would get over its own willful moral handicaps, you know? Right, right. To that end, I was struck by something when you were talking about the body and and the importance of the body. Pope John Paul II used to refer to the meaning of the body, right? Right. So you say to yourself, well, if you have a child with 
profound or minor disabilities. What's the meaning here? Right. And I'm always struck with, you know, even just the physical appearance, my, my daughter's physical appearance. There are, there are aspects of it that convey, you know, just a willingness to love, you know, her, her, her short little, she has shorter arms, right? So when she pulls you in for a hug, boy, does she hug you tight. Mm -hmm. And she has to because her arms are so short. So, so there isn't that distance that you would ordinarily have. So there's this, this meaning to the body with the disability, not in spite of the disability, right? right? That I think exactly. we need to keep in mind. But, but to your point about Descartes too, the other thing to keep in mind is that the Cartesian revolution not only affected our view of the individual and the relationship of the, the, the person to the body, but it also affected our understanding of the family, right? right? Because after the Enlightenment, and especially with social contract theory, we view the individual as an isolated, autonomous individual, and relationships are by consent. And so when it comes to thinking about our own family, what are we thinking? We're thinking, what do I want? I want the perfect family. And mm. do I want to have this child, or do I not want to have this child? I'll choose to have this child, right? And so suddenly, rather than being able to accept every child as a gift, we look at a child as something that is hours to pick and choose, right? And so that I think is fueling this desire for perfection. And there's a desire for perfection, not just in your own life, but you, this real desire to have the perfect family. Right. But then you say to yourself, well, what is a family? A family encompasses all of this. The Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about the family being the, the cell of society that's there for birth, for death, for old age, for sickness and disability. All of these, it's the ordinary condition of life. And I will say, we have to be on guard as Catholics. I mean, you'll see this sometimes in you know, the preparatory document for the Synod, and they corrected this. But initially, they wrote about disability as if it were some kind of extraordinary challenge, rather than part of the ordinary fabric of human life. Not to say that it's not a challenge when it occurs, but if you think you're escaping it mm. in your family, mm. you're kidding yourself. And the idea of autonomy, even within the family, you know, I mean, that's sometimes the the statement I've heard about, you know, peoples with disabilities, like, you know, you mentioned this earlier, well, if they can't be autonomous by the time they're 18, you know, the, even, even families sometimes just have this attitude of, I'll be your mom and dad until you're 18. Mm -hmm. And then you're gonna go off and do your thing and I get my life back. Right. You know, that can be the selfishness even it, with parents with kids, it's a temporary juncture. And so you get a situation, and I thought you just said it so beautifully, like, who cares? like when they're 18, like why would that make any difference that you would continue to be taking care of your children is a very countercultural perspective yes. and a very important witness to the world, you know, about the dignity of the person and the role of the family within society. For centuries, it was always understood that mothers, fathers, grandparents, children, you took care of each other, mm -hmm. no matter where you were at your stage in life. And so one of the sad things to me, at one point I was down in Florida and I remember encountering a, um, I was in a store and there was an elderly couple there and, and they were clearly infirm, but there was no one there to help them. Yeah. And I thought, ah, I, I, I wish your kids were here for you. I really do. I don't know what the circumstances were, but, but, but it makes you determined in your own life, like I need to be there for my family. Yeah, amen. Well, thank you for this. And when we return, uh, we will come back with some final thoughts uh, regarding this very important subject. So please stay with us.
When I think of Down syndrome, I think of my son Jude. Um, he started his education in a mainstream situation kind of school. It was great, he loved it. He had his uh, little buddies to take him through classes. They swam together, it was great. But then we moved and he had to uh, go to a different school and be in a special needs class, which um, he didn't like as much. And uh, frankly, I don't blame him. I, I think I would like to encourage Catholic schools to include delayed kids and mainstream them. It would help everyone. Um, it would create a culture of love. You know, and that's what we're here to do. Yesterday I saw a sign on a professor's door. God doesn't value us for what we do. He values us for who we are. That's why we're called human beings and not human doings. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. William, would you start us off with your thoughts? Yeah, two, two things come to mind. One is uh, when I knew uh, we were going to be on this show and it would be about disability, I suddenly panicked. I thought, gosh, I don't know anything about disability at all. I mean, and it took me two days until I realized, gosh, I had a child with disability. Hmm. And it really, I felt like that because I never really viewed her in that way. I mean, she was profoundly disabled at one level. But when you look with the eyes of love, you don't really see that. You just see your daughter or you see your sister or your mother or whatever it might be. And I suppose that's the challenge, isn't it? If we can look with the eyes of love. The, the second thing is that uh, we spoke a little bit about the church and uh, d people with disabilities. And I think, you know, there is a truth that the church is ministering to those people. But there's another truth, I think, which comes through, especially in John Paul II's, you know, World Day of Sick, that actually they are part of the mission of the church. They're ba baptized individuals, often confirmed individuals, then they are missionaries in the church. And I have to say, I even experienced that with our own daughter, Elizabeth, though she was tiny. Uh, in the town we were living, there was a, a woman we knew, and um, she had lost a daughter in a car accident about 10 years ago, and she was very hurt about that, and she told us she couldn't, she couldn't speak to God about that. Kind of broken her relationship with God. And after our child came home, she used to come quite often and just hold our child for like half an hour or an hour. Mm. And she told us after some time, she said, you know, that, that's healed me. I can speak to God now. Mm. And I suddenly realized it, she's a missionary. Yes. She's baptized. She's a missionary. So we'll be careful that the disabled aren't just the object of the mission of the church. They are members of the church who also have a profound mission. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how I'm feeling. Amen. Absolutely. You know, the, the takeaway that comes to my mind is as you've done it to the least of these. You know, and it builds on what William was just saying too, because they're members of the body of Christ, really and truly. And all of us are weak and infirm at various levels. You know, but when the, the least of these are there, to whom God has given consent, God has consented their existence, you know. And so if we kind of take the social contract and say, well, the parents didn't, you know, and so therefore, it, to me, it's, it's a kind of falsification of reality that blinds us to something and creates a sort of modern mythology that just persists. And uh, I, I think of what something else that you said that's just true for all of us, that not only has God consented to our existence, and so the least we could do is return the favor, but has consented the existence of these weak members of his body precisely so that we can find Christ in their faces. And not only see Christ in, an, in, in them, but at the same time see ourselves, that Christ has identified himself 
with our infirmities, as we hear in Isaiah 53. Not just the blatant ones, you know, but he's accepted us as we are. And so it just creates a sort of feedback loop, a kind of, you know, uh, spiritual reciprocity where you see what he's done for us, you see how he is present in them, and you see how he is beckoning us to love him in them and to see ourselves being loved by him, you know. And it's, it's the gospel in miniature, it really is. And uh, I mean, you have taken it from the kind of lofty spiritual rhetoric that I hear myself, you know, down to the reality. And uh, I just can't help but think that your role as Annie's mom is as significant as the PhD from Notre Dame's uh, Medieval uh, Institute. More, more, more. Yeah, thank absolutely. You. I wanted, it, I wanted, it really yeah, is. Of course, it, it it is, and and I I can't say enough how um, I, I guess from my closing thoughts, what I would like to encourage is anyone who's watching this, anyone who's hearing us today, if you're encountering a um, prenatal diagnosis or you know someone who is, or you're facing illness or disability in your own family, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid because our Lord gives you, number one, he's going to give you the graces and the people in your life to get through it. Don't be afraid to ask for help. We're, your church needs to be here for you. And sometimes people need to be, they need to be asked. They need to be invited in to help you care for, for your loved one. But, but I will tell you to be around and be privileged, privileged to be a, caring for someone with disabilities or caring for someone in their illness is a profoundly enriching experience. And, and we've lost sight of the fact that it's a privilege and, and we instead view it as a burden. And so, and you, you're, you, were, you were right in terms of saying that they are missionaries for the church and they have their own, these persons have their own value. There's a meaning to their suffering. The, my, my mother-in-law lived almost a year to the day from the time when when the uh, the nursing home and the hospice team declared that they were no longer going to feed her. She had a point to make and she made it. Mm. And she made it by living, by living and loving and being there with us. My daughter has, she has a mission and it's a privilege to be along with it. But, but there are so many resources there, you know, we didn't get to talk about if you're facing a diagnosis of a child with a devastating disability, mm. there's something called perinatal hospice where Catholic groups around the country are coming in and they will support you in your pregnancy and help you through and the couples that have gone through have dis- have have declared that it's a profoundly enriching experience that they would they would they would do it no other way they they have declared that it's a gift to be able to be with their child at the end of their life or you know as they as they struggle through their illness so, so my closing thought, be not afraid. Amen, amen, and thank you for that, for your witness and for your scholarship in helping us understand this in a more Catholic and human way. Um, if you'd like to learn more about today's topic, uh, we have a handout for you. It's an excerpt of a paper by Dr. Farnan on beauty and disability. This handout is yours for free by simply going online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on the screen in just a moment. As we were talking about this topic, the words uh, from the Book of Wisdom uh, just jumped to my heart, which is when it says that uh, you love all that you made and you loathe nothing that you made, for if you had hated it, you would not have willed it. You know, God doesn't create 
accidents. That's, uh, that's a way that we, in a medical terminology, might see somebody with a disability. Oh, it's an accident. Oh, that should not have happened. You know, that's not the normal of what is supposed to occur. All of these have a uh, preconceived notion that we believe that there's this perfection that we are trying to attain in ourselves and in our children. And yet God loves all that he makes. He makes people. Uh, he makes all of us. And, and as we think of the divine intellect, you know, my ability to think and somebody else with what we might consider a mental disability, in God's mind, there's no difference, you know, compared to the vast intellect of God, compared to the vast power of God, my ability to walk and someone else being in a wheelchair, there's, there's no difference compared to the glory of God and a God who loves us and a God who makes us in his image and makes us for each other. You know, uh, many times seeing the face of those uh, that are different than ourselves cause us to step outside of ourselves. Because in this life, we are always in need of others and we are given the opportunity to help others in need. And so I pray that our church and our family and our faith communities and our society would be more open to that love, uh, more open to community, more open to family. And certainly that's something that we hope we give to our students here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, as well as through our conferences and through our online programs. We hope that you might join us in our mission to educate, evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples to restore all things in Christ. Why don't we just conclude this with a prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that you made us and you love us, that you are our healer, you are our salvation and you make us uh, in your image and likeness, you make us in love, and you make us for love, you make us to love each other. And so God, send your Holy Spirit into our families, into our church, into our society, that we may be more loving. Uh, help us see your face in everyone around us and recognize your glory and your work in our lives as you are calling all of us to the perfection that can only be attained in your love in Jesus Christ, our Blessed Mother, we ask your particular intercession as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.